You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's obvious... Scurvy Legs, Brendan, Kruger, Ironside, M.D., Big Beard, Willie P., Schmarls, Josiah, Logan, Pablo, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Jack Joyce, The Knight of Dampier, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Drunken Dak, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons Alistair, Alexis, Michael, Nicholas, Oliver, Olivia, Patricia, and Richard. And our newest quartermaster, Jeppy Latch. And of course, our two new Commodores, Fraser and Ketzel. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. We're going to begin today in the North American English colonies. And on that note, there is one thing I'd like to address. I've seen some discussion online and some thoughtful, deeply intellectual YouTube comment sections about the word Americans about when it's appropriate and accurate to use the word Americans. And I'm here to tell you that it's perfectly okay to call anyone living in the Western Hemisphere, regardless of the year, an American. You know, Amerigo Vespucci lent his name to these continents, to North and South America. The U.S. is the United States of America. We're a part of that larger community. And, you know, American has become kind of a shorthand for someone from the U.S., but even in the colonial era, you know, when Massachusetts was still a British property, it's perfectly fine to call the people there Americans. Or the, you know, the French fur traders operating out of Detroit or San Louis, or the Spanish in Peru, they're all Americans. Not only is it technically accurate, it's period accurate as well. You see the term used not frequently, but occasionally, in letters and dispatches of the time. Those letters and dispatches often carry kind of a derisive tone, you know, kind of a, ugh, provincials. But they were, sometimes, called Americans. 
So to all of our friends in Argentina and Jamaica and Canada and everyone else on this side of the globe, we're all Americans. This is episode 208, Pirate Brokers, part one. With all that out of the way, it's time to get down to the good stuff, the kind of swashbuckling stuff for which you come to the Pirate History Podcast. We're talking about 17th century gubernatorial politics in New England. Try to contain your excitement. You know, growing up, I knew exactly four things about New England history. Pilgrims, witches, headless horsemen, and the Boston Tea Party. But naturally, there is a lot more to it. New England was always a headache for the crown. Their governments and governors were always causing problems for the mother country, well before the revolution. Round about 1692, you would find our old friend Benjamin Fletcher as governor in New York. John Easton was serving in Rhode Island. William Phipps, who we know pretty well by now, was in Massachusetts. And then there was William Penn in Pennsylvania. Their primary concern for all of them, even while Phipps was dealing with the witch trials in Salem, their primary concern was the war. The Nine Years' War against France, or as they called it, King William's War. And they did so because they didn't want to be fighting this war. They blamed it on King William. It was a, it was a burden. They and their people bore a heavier tax burden than they had prior to the war, and it all took a toll on their trade and their manpower. When people are busy fighting, they're not busy tilling the fields or fishing or trading. The only governor, though, that really seemed interested in prosecuting the war was William Phipps in Massachusetts. See, his colony had a tangible territorial gain at stake in the fighting. They wanted Maine. Benjamin Fletcher, well, we've talked about him at length. The two real sticks in the mud about this whole thing were John Easton in Rhode Island and William Penn in Pennsylvania. Both men were Quakers, both had proto-democratic leanings, and both were pacifists. King William, as you might imagine, hated them. Well, no, I shouldn't say hated. He was really annoyed with them. Both men were elected rather than appointed, first of all, which, you know, kings aren't terribly fond of. Both colonies had their own private governmental codes, which most kings aren't fond of. More than that, though, most of all, they were counterproductive to the war effort. They weren't paying their extra wartime taxes, nor were they raising levies to fight against the French. It was maddening. And I would, oh, I would love to delve into William Penn and all of his proto-democratic bona fides and really just how much King William despised all of it. And you know, it's not because William III was some kind of absolutist tyrant. He wasn't. He came from a relatively democratic republic. But he wanted his subjects, his representatives in America, to fight the war. And William Penn... Well, he just wouldn't. Now, William Penn kind of owned the territory of Pennsylvania. It had been granted to him by royal writ some years before. It was, I think, the largest non-royal landholding in the world. 
But despite that, King William recalled him back to England because of his reluctance to engage in warfare. Now that's a fascinating story, and I encourage you to look it up, but it doesn't really impact our story today. Except in one thing. King William needed a governor in Pennsylvania who would pay their taxes and prosecute the war. And beyond that, there was a desire to consolidate some of these colonial holdings in America. And, you know, when I say the king wanted these things, I really mean the government of the king, mainly the Privy Council and the Lords of Trade and Plantations. They wanted these things. But it was King William that appointed a new governor to oversee Pennsylvania, our old friend Benjamin Fletcher. He got the colony up and running from the royal perspective. You know, they were doing fine before that. Philadelphia was a boomtown that traded in all kinds of luxury goods. The kind of goods that Boston was a bit too puritanical for and New York was a bit too piratey for. So Philadelphia and Pennsylvania, as an extension, were doing just fine, but Benjamin Fletcher got the colony paying taxes and raising troops. Now, his stint as governor only lasted for a few months. William Penn eventually relented. He agreed to pay his taxes and to send men off to kill other men, and thus he was sent back to Pennsylvania. But that other Quaker governor, John Easton, in Rhode Island, he was more troublesome. He never sent troops anywhere, even when his neighbors were in dire straits, even when they specifically requested he do so, even when it might have saved lives. He never did. This irked the king. Maybe not as much as Pennsylvania. I mean, Rhode Island was small, much smaller than Pennsylvania, but still, it's the principle. So when William Phipps, the soon-to-be governor of Massachusetts, went to England in 1691 with Increase Mather to petition the king for a new Massachusetts charter, the king installed him as governor, but he gave him another job. Phipps was going to take command of the Rhode Island militia. This gave him royal authority, over Governor John Easton in all military affairs. The Rhode Island Council wasn't terribly fond of this, and a flurry of correspondence flew between Providence and London. The Council and the Governor were all arguing and providing relevant documentation that the King had no right to supersede their authority in this matter, and the King would shoot back with his own arguments, but it was just about at this time that a small group of teenage girls were accusing their friends and neighbors of Congress with the Beast, of witchcraft. You know, we've been talking a lot about print journalism lately as it relates to pirates, but the Salem witch trials were a big part of the rise of print journalism. I mean, pirates make good copy, absolutely. Violence and sin and sex and all that sells well, but... The witch trials, complete with their suggestive themes and tales of carnal lusts, well, it sold a lot of papers. Governor Easton wrote to the king in one of his final letters, making his argument, and I'm going to paraphrase a bit here. It was something like, bro, 
See what they're doing over there? That's crazy. They're hanging people. They're putting kids in jail. They can't run our army. More specifically, it read, quote, The people of this colony, Massachusetts, had suffered too much from the superstitions and the priestcraft of the Puritans, readily to adopt their delusions. The bedevilment of their neighbors engrossed their whole attention. End quote. The crux of his argument was basically, you know, they're dealing with their own thing over there. You can't give them control of our forces. So King William eventually relented on that front. But it looks like he took a different tactic. There is some evidence and suggestion that King William, or more likely somebody in his cabinet, was engaging in secret correspondence with the deputy governor of Rhode Island. His name was John Green, and John Green was not a Quaker. In fact, a member of the assembly there in Rhode Island called him, quote, a brutish man of very corrupt or no principles in religion, end quote. But there do seem to be two different versions of Deputy Governor Green. The first is a version that lived in Rhode Island and served its people honorably for 60 years. He was nearing 80 at this point in our story, a man who was a pillar and a servant of the colony his whole adult life. The other version appears somewhat abruptly in 1694. This was a 74-year-old scoundrel who transformed into a troublemaker of the highest order, a, a disreputable rogue. The shift happened when John Green began distributing privateering commissions. Now, it's entirely possible he was a disreputable rogue, that he caught wind of some of the massive profits that Benjamin Fletcher was making in New York and wanted in. It's also possible that John Green did what he thought was right. They were at war with France, and France had a large privateer force that virtually controlled the North Atlantic Ocean. England needed a response. The colonies needed a response. Rhode Island needed one. And Governor Easton, it appeared, was too weak to do what needed to be done. So John Green stepped up and issued a number of privateering commissions. And it's not like he was alone in doing so. At just about the same moment, we're talking within a couple of months of each other, governors in Philadelphia, Boston, and New York were all arming this armada of private naval contractors. All of those naval contractors were given, quote, a defensive commission against his majesty's enemies. End quote. There were a few who were given offensive commissions, but we'll talk about them next time. For now, this flurry of privateering commissions might suggest that there was a policy shift toward privateering in the English court. King James II had been adamantly against the notion of arming anyone outside of the Royal Navy. Now, early on, William III did permit the granting of commissions by governors for very specific actions. You know, like the battles of Port Royal or Quebec. But on the whole, the governors did not have carte blanche to grant letters of mark to anyone who wanted one. But right here, in this very short window of time, a bunch of them did so. All of a sudden, it suggests that orders had come down from London, giving them that permission. Now, there may be evidence of this that 
could be very obvious, but I can't find it, and none of the sources from which I'm working mention it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. But it makes one think that someone spoke to or wrote to John Green. If Governor Easton was not going to do the job, it looked like it was time for someone to do so. But beyond potential royal policy, there's a very good chance it may just have been the Thomas II effect. You know, he arrived at New York with this giant pile of silver, and it enriched everyone in the colony. From the governor on down, who's to say that the rest of New England didn't see some of that and wanted in on the next big score? And then maybe it was Henry Every. This deluge of privateering commissions all come in the wake of his mutiny of the Charles II in May 1694. Those couple of months were the summer of 1694. But maybe it wasn't a desire to get in on the action. Maybe that shift in royal policy came down not against the French, but against the pirates aboard the Fancy, and what they must have feared would have been a wave of pirates following in their example. That summer saw dozens of commissions handed out. Most of them, admittedly, were to ships that stayed in local waters, who actually defended the New England coast, who did their job as privateers, but some of those ships did not. Personally, though, I think it was a more direct influence on the part of Thomas, too. I would not be surprised in the least to find out that he had agents in Philadelphia and Boston and Providence with big bags of bribes for anyone in the governor's office who could secure a commission. Now, not a commission for himself or the Amity. He had his own commission. It was locked down from Benjamin Fletcher, but he needed commission for all his friends. And Benjamin Fletcher wasn't going to be able to give commissions to all his friends. He had already handed out a few too many to do so. Notably, two commissions to men who were not directly associated with Thomas II. 
Richard Glover, and John Hoare. And it's worth introducing those two captains today. John Hoare was born in Ireland, probably in 1664 or 65. He was an infant when Henry Morgan and the Brethren of the Coast were raiding Portobello and Panama. He was a full generation removed from the Brethren of the Coast. And I bring this up for a couple of reasons. First, I just kind of like to occasionally look at what past and future pirates were up to while our current pirates are active. On that note, here in the summer of 1694, Benjamin Hornigold and Charles Vane and Edward Teach were all 14 years old. Jack Rackham and Black Bart Roberts, they were 12. Mary Reed was 11. Sam Bellamy and Steed Bonnet, 6. And Bonnie had yet to be born. There was definitely inspiration taken from generation to generation in the golden age of piracy, but... More importantly, the second reason I bring up Henry Morgan is because John Hoare sailed his frigate, the Dublin, to Port Royal, Jamaica. This was prior to the earthquake in 1689 or 1690. He was probably one of the last mariners to receive a letter of mark from Port Royal. It was Governor Beeston, who you may remember that commissioned John Hoare to attack the French. And that's what he did. John Hoare spent several months countering the machinations of the French privateers around Hispaniola. That's Lauro de Graff and his group. Then he moved on to the Leeward Islands, and it was there, in a small raid off of Martinique, that John Hoare encountered a man named Abraham Samuel. Abraham Samuel was... Well, he was born the son of a black slave woman and her French master. The French Code Noir was more legally permissive of children of mixed-race couplings than the English, for example, but it still wasn't great. The father had virtually unlimited legal rights to do with the child as he wished, and the chance that the sexual encounter that created Abraham Samuel was anything other than rape is vanishingly small. His father almost certainly treated Abraham like property, not as a son. So when the opportunity arose for Abraham Samuel to run away with a bunch of privateers, he did so. When John Hoare arrived at Martinique, Abraham Samuel made his way to his ship and joined up. After Martinique, though, the West Indies were getting a little too hot for John Hoare, so he sailed up to North America. Plus, he'd likely heard that there were big moves taking place in that theater of the war. It was either during or shortly after the Battle of Port Royal in Canada that John Hoare captured a French frigate called St. Paul. And to his credit, John Hoare did what you are supposed to do in that situation as a proper privateer. He sailed the St. Paul back to the English colonies for verification. Now, after this large-scale battle, the admiralty courts in Boston and New York were backed up. So Captain Hoare sailed for Providence, where the Rhode Island Assembly convened an admiralty court of their own. They adjudicated Hoare's capture of the St. Paul, and on 7 January 1694, they deemed it a legal, wartime, privateer action, and they granted John Hoare ownership of the St. Paul. He renamed her John and Rebecca. Then he sold his old ship, the Dublin, and took up residence in New York. 
There he married a woman whose name I couldn't track down, but we know about the marriage because of her brother, Richard Glover. Glover was related to judges and colonels and relatively wealthy merchants. Now, we're not talking the super wealthy, you know, not Frederick Phillips and his ilk, but men who did run in the same circles as Frederick Phillips. It's probable, verging on certain, but not confirmed, that the marriage between John Hoare and Richard Glover's sister was arranged to secure some kind of business deal. You know, a behind-the-scenes, back-room kind of business deal, but with a lot of money on the line. See, John Hoare showed up in this shiny new frigate armed to the teeth. He was a successful privateer. Then he married into the family of Richard Glover. That gave him a wife and a house in New York. It made New York his home port for good. And then, shortly thereafter, in the summer of 1694, Benjamin Fletcher granted John Hoare and his brother-in-law Richard Glover privateering commissions. Richard Glover was given command of the 200-ton, 16-gun, 80-man frigate Charming Mary. He was given command by that judge and colonel and merchant to whom he was related that I mentioned earlier. The Charming Mary, under Captain Glover, and the John and Rebecca, under Captain Hoare, were to sail together. They were to sail for Madagascar in the Indian Ocean. But their mission was not connected to that of Thomas II, and it was different than that of Thomas II. They weren't part of the same fleet at all. Thomas II was to be an independent operator. He was to sail east to hunt prizes and return with plunder. Real pirate stuff there, but you know, pirates can be unpredictable. Even though Thomas II had a wife and children in New York and a nice new home of his own, Governor Fletcher could never quite guarantee that he was going to return as promised. Captains Glover and Hoare, though, they would do the job. And their job here was not pirate stuff. It was hauling cargo to Madagascar. The two ships had been filled to the bursting with guns and shot and powder and good wine and more than anything else, cattle. And, yeah, this included cows, but likely it also included pigs. After all, we know that pirates are very fond of their, uh, salted pork. What? Nothing? We don't have anything queued up here? All right. Anyway, their mission was to sail for Madagascar with the said supplies and to sell them to Adam Baldridge. And it was there at his pirate fortress at St. Mary's Fucking that they would... Son of a... <clears throat> and then... Okay, and then they had a bit of leeway in their mission statement. We're going to get down to what that leeway entailed down the road, I promise you, but at the end of their voyage, they were to return with their two ships full of illegally obtained slaves that could then be sold on the black market in New England. So with their ships and their cargo in hand, Richard Glover and John Hoare and Abraham Samuel all set sail for Bermuda. There they would outfit their ships for a voyage on what was quickly becoming known, even then, as the Pirate Round. Now, initially, I had intended to talk about all 
the privateers that were handed commissions by the New England governors in the summer of 1694, we've met most of the rest already. But this episode did kind of get away from me, and there is quite a bit to talk about about each of those pirates and their commissions. So I'd like to end today with a brief glimpse into the future. All of this privateer activity, while it was possibly ordered by or even just condoned by the crown, well, it was going to blow up in the faces of every governor in New England. In a little over a year, only one of the four governors we talked about today will still be in power. All four will have been investigated, two will have been detained, and one of them will have been arrested. The most common accusation, though, that was levied at these governors and their underlings was what the Admiralty Court called pirate brokering. That's to say, knowingly and with malice aforethought, enabling, outfitting, licensing, and doing business with ships and sailors that were, by that point, responsible for the worst outbreak of piracy that the world had ever seen. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody that has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. Everybody who has left us ratings or reviews. And everybody who has recommended this show. You all make it possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, you can visit us at piratehistorypodcast.com, about which keep your eyes and ears open. We have news in the works. But as always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight